So now we have been sitting together for about five days. How is it? Here you are sitting and walking and paying attention. Is it all right? Are there difficulties? My teacher Ajahn Shah used to say, we human beings are constantly in combat, at war to escape the fact of living in a limited world, limited by so many circumstances we cannot control, of being just this much. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with what is good, waging war with what is evil, waging war with what is too small, waging war with what is too big, waging war with what is too short or too long, or old or young or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. Have you noticed (laughs) that tendency in us? So we come here seeking something, seeking some, people have different questions perhaps, some peace, some release, some understanding, some greater love, some joy. I'll start a story for you. It's a story that comes from Rumi, wonderful Persian poet. There was a merchant setting out for India. He asked each male and female employed in his household what they wanted to be brought as a gift. Each told him a different exotic object, a bolt of silk, a silver figurine, a pearl necklace. Then he asked his beautiful caged parrot, the one with such a lovely voice. And she said, when you see the Indian parrots, describe my cage. Say that I need guidance here in my separation from them. Ask how our friendship can continue with me in this cage and them flying about so freely. Tell them I remember well our mornings moving from tree to tree. Tell them to drink drink a cup of ecstatic wine in honor of me here in the dregs of my life. (laughs) Tell them that the sound of their quarreling high in the trees would be sweeter than any music I might hear in my cage. This parrot is the spirit bird in all of us, that part that wants to return to freedom and is the freedom. What she wants from India is herself. Part one. To be continued. So we come and we want something, or freedom, or enlightenment, or joy, or peace, or something. And we imagine what that might be somewhere, if we're good boys and girls, or successful yogis, or whatever our kind of inner plan is about it. But we have to start quite simply, just being aware of what we're given, our breath, breathing in and out, and learning just to feel the breath as it comes again and again. Being aware of our body, learning to be aware of our feelings, to reclaim the capacity to feel the various feelings of this life. To be aware of our thoughts. And in the first step, it's healing just to come into the present. Just, ah, this breath, this feeling, pleasant or painful, this thought, this sensation, just to touch it with our attention. But what does it mean to be free, to really open our hearts, our spirits completely? That's what the bird was asking from India. The truth that we seek is not newly invented, the freedom we might seek. As one Zen master said, it is nearer than near, not one of our steps lead away. So we're asked to begin to listen deeply with an inquiry and innocence and openness of mind and heart to study this life we've been given. To remind you of that innocence, I'll read you a few letters from this book entitled Children's Letters to God that were written various Sunday schools. Dear God, are you really invisible or is that just a trick? Lucy. Dear God, who draws the lines around countries? Love, Nan. Dear God, 
Instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? <laughs> Jane. Dear God, this is all in their children's handwriting. Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? Neil. <laughs> Dear God, I'm an American. What are you? Bravo. <laughs> they really want to know. Dear God, if we come back as something, please don't let me be Jennifer Horton because I hate her. <laughs> Denise. Dear God, it rained for our whole vacation, and is my father mad? He said some things about you that people are not supposed to say, but I hope you will not hurt him anyway. You're a friend, but I'm not going to tell you who I am. So what we're asked to do in spiritual life is bring that kind of freshness to say, what is this body and mind and spirit that we've been given? Study it. Examine the basic nature of our existence. And as we begin here, day after day, paying attention with mindfulness, listening, learning how to acknowledge what arises, in-breath, out-breath, sometimes the breath is subtle, sometimes it's very coarse, Sometimes it's so soft you have to feel it with a very delicate, soft attention. Other times it's very full. Just to listen and feel all the things the breath does. There's no right or wrong breathing. There's the listening to the many rhythms of the breath. Then there's the listening to the body. First it feels like there's just pain in some places. But what is it if we really listen to pain? What is pain? Is it fire or needles or pinpricks? pinpricks or tension or twisting? Is it solid or if you bring your attention close to it, does it move and dance and change? This thing that we've always run from, to listen to it. And as we do this, we do the simple practice of acknowledging, of naming what's present. Hearing, hearing, pressure, cold, cold, sad, planning, breathing in, breathing out. Noticing two things. Noticing what's present and most predominant, the breath or sensations, feelings. In this moment, just being with that, that's the first task, to notice what's present. And then the second task in this inquiry is to notice what happens to it. As you note it, hearing or itching or tingling or sad, sad, sad. Name it as long as it's present and see what it does. Does it get bigger? Does it dissolve? Does it turn into something else? To become in meditation what Alan Watts called a courteous audience. To sit and experience what happens, the pains in the body. Sometimes that's what you have a lot in sitting certain days. That's part of the lesson in meditation. Or the moods that come and sweep over us, one mood after another, at certain times very strongly, restlessness, fear, doubt, as Carol talked about, joy. And the thoughts that come, particularly the repetitive ones, the top ten tunes of the week, you know, that come over and over again. To acknowledge thinking, oh, there's number one on the hit parade. There's no, you can number them if you need to. There's number two, that's been back a lot this week. <laughs> if they come often, it's not that you need to replay the record. You've already heard the song a lot of times. But when the thoughts come many times, it's to feel more deeply, what is coming here in my body, as Gil said? What is asking for acceptance? If the thoughts keep coming, it's because there's grief, or longing, or love, or creativity, or anger, or something that has not been accepted, so it keeps knocking and coming back, or fear, whatever it is. So we sit as a courteous audience. The pains of the body, explore them and see how they open and change the feelings, the thoughts. And as we do, we begin to see what is the nature of this life, this physical, mental life we've been given. The Buddha particularly recommends that we examine or reflect on three qualities, central qualities, to experience, to see if this is so. 
The first of these, and I talked about it a little bit on the first night, is what the Buddha called the first noble truth, dukkha, suffering. There's the personal suffering we have of physical pain, of illness, of aging, of depression, of fear, of entanglement, of loss. And then the universal pains, the hunger in the world, the warfare, the nationalism. And we're not very separate from that. Here we go to lunch and we have pasta primavera that's served to us in a beautiful way. And yet we know that there are hungry families in Iraq and starving people in Bosnia or India or Somalia or still parts of Central America or our inner cities in places while we eat that, not separate than us. That we sit in this sanctuary of some peace and yet in other places humans just like us experience war, injustice, imprisonment on this earth just now in the same way. And somehow we're asked to hold this contradiction. Friend Richard Heckler, who is also a one of the teachers at the Lomi School, went and did a six-month training program for the U.S. Army Special Forces. Took a number, 80 or so, of the very best trained um, of the Green Beret of Army Special Forces and taught them meditation, body work, stalled, movement, um, all the things that come from the kind of uh, new psychological traditions. A lot of his friends thought that he was crazy to do this and that it was a bad thing, but he felt that that awareness for them would be beneficial. In the midst of the six-month training program, these Army Green Beret men did a one-month retreat in a camp in the woods in Massachusetts. And these are guys who are trained as the toughest of the American military to do high-altitude jumps at night and not open their parachute until they're really close to the ground. So no one, it's called a halo jump, high-altitude, low-opening jump. And then to, to come and to plunge into icy Atlantic water and swim to the shore and you know bivouac and make a whole camp for yourself and so forth. And who'd all pretty much been in different countries in, in war situations and firefights. And you know what they said? Sitting a one-month retreat was the hardest thing they had ever done. <laughs> so here's his image. He comes into the meditation hall and looks, and there are the seated figures in their military, some of their military dress, with an M16 rifle next to them, sitting on Zafus. <laughs> I sit down in front of them, turning to the right. This person seems still, and I turn toward him motionless, alive with presence, concentration breathing deeply. My eye is caught by something on the black t-shirt that hugs his huge barrel chest. Printed in bone white on the front is a large skull and crossbones. The words over the skull read 82nd Airborne Division and underneath the letters read Death from Above. <laughs> Something's wrong, I say to myself. People don't wear t-shirts like this at meditation retreats. But the person inside the t-shirt looks like someone at a meditation retreat. This other voice responds. I look back. 82nd Airborne Division, death from above. Rising and falling, <laughs> rising and falling. I have no mental file for what I see. Killing and meditation simply do not go together. But the pain of the truth is that dukkha is all around us and that we know of it and that we participate in it and that it's part of the contradictoriness of our own life. Every time we turn on our air conditioner, we're also the participating in the destruction of the ozone layer. Every time we fly in a jet plane to go somewhere on vacation, we're using technology and resources and so forth that in some ways are taken from those who are hungry. We all do it. If we look inside, we see that none of this is separate then from ourselves. If only it were all so simple, says Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart?
So to be human and to awaken requires us to bear witness to the joys and sorrows of this human existence. We cannot avoid that if we are to awaken. This is a prayer for children written by a school teacher in New Jersey. You can imagine the school she might teach at. We pray for children who sneak popsicles before supper, who erase holes in math workbooks, who throw tantrums in the grocery store and pick at their food, who like ghost stories and can never find their food with their shoes. And we pray for those who stare at photographers from behind barbed wire, who can't bound down the street in a new pair of sneakers, who are born in places we wouldn't be caught dead, who never go to the circus, who live in an X-rated world. We pray for children who sleep with the dog and bury the goldfish, who bring us sticky kisses and fistfuls of dandelions, who get visits from the tooth fairy, who hug us in a hurry and forget their lunch money. And we pray for those who never get dessert, who have no safe blanket to drag behind them, who watch their parents watch them die, who can't find bread even to steal, who don't have any rooms to clean up, whose pictures aren't on anyone's dresser, whose monsters are real. We pray for children who spend all their allowance before Tuesday, who shove dirty clothes under the bed and never rinse out the tub, who don't like to be kissed in front of the carpool, who squirm in church and scream in the phone, whose tears we sometimes laugh at and whose smiles can make us cry. And we pray for those whose nightmares come in the daytime, who will eat anything, who have never seen a dentist and aren't spoiled by anybody, who go to bed hungry and cry themselves to sleep. We pray for children who want to be carried and for those who must, for those we never give up on and for those who don't get a second chance, for those we smother and those who would grab the hand of anyone kind enough to offer it. Again, the Buddha asked at one point, which do you think is more, my friends, the waters in the four great oceans or the tears that you have shed in these long rounds of birth and death and loss of things that you loved and change and conflict that you've been in over and over lifetimes. Greater, my friends, is the, is the body of tears that you've shed than the waters of the four great oceans. So in Tibetan Buddhism, the goddess of compassion is depicted as Tara, this beautiful green and white Tara, these feminine figures of infinite compassion. And the two goddesses of infinite compassion, Tara, are supposed to have arisen from the tears that rolled down the cheeks of the Buddha after he had done his utmost to save every being in every realm and kind of helped every being he could find only to turn around and discover that every realm he had entered had more beings going back into it from the hell realms to the heaven realms yet again entangled. And he began to weep and the two tears turned into the goddess of compassion. Dukkha the first noble truth. Personally, our own body, sickness, aging, you can see it, the aging of the Sangha, the graying of the Sangha. You know, and we think that it won't happen to us. Alan Watts talks about most people acting like they're winding their watch on the way to the gallows, just imagining somehow that things aren't going to change. And yet personally, praise and blame and loss and brokenheartedness and a lot of self-hatred in our culture, so much of it. And insecurity, you can get a doctor's call any day saying, I'm sorry, this is your test results. Even a great Tibetan Lama like Lama Yeshe, wonderful enlightened teacher, went in the hospital for a heart attack. And he wrote this letter to one of his Dharma brothers, another Lama, he said, never have I known the experiences and suffering which attended my stay in intensive care from the powerful medicines and unending injection. It was extremely difficult to maintain awareness without becoming confused. At worst, after 41 days, the condition of my body was such that I became the lord of a cemetery, 
My mind was like that of an anti-god, and my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. In the ICU, he said it took him a long time recognizing that, weeks to begin to do his prayers and meditations and stabilize again through great effort a certain happiness and peace in his mind. Our life is fragile, and one dimension of it inevitably is loss and pain. It's inherent in our existence. One of the teachers with whom I studied, one of the monasteries where I studied, Ivajan Neb, used to say to people, if you want to understand this truth, start your meditation in the morning and make the resolution that I will not do anything unless I have to. Just have a nice day, so to speak. So you get up in the morning and you lie there in bed, just enjoying lying in bed, and then all of a sudden your bladder hurts, doesn't it? So you have to get up and pee to relieve the pain. But then you're cold standing in the bathroom there, or sitting, depending on your want, right? It's cold and uncomfortable. So to relieve the cold, you go and you get yourself dressed. And then maybe you just sit down comfortably, but then your stomach starts to say, a little bit of stomach hunger pain. Better go feed, alleviate the hunger pain. So you go and you eat. You finish eating. You don't have to clean up, but if you don't clean up, pretty soon flies come and it rots, right? It smells. So you clean up to avoid the suffering of rotting food in your kitchen. Then you say, all right, I'll be relaxed. I'll just go sit comfortably. Sit down in a nice chair. You sit in one position for about 15 minutes, and what happens? You know, you've been sitting. It starts to hurt a little bit. So you change your posture. All right, I'll sit that way and be more comfortable. After a while, you get bored. It's, it's unpleasant just to sit, isn't it? Well, all right, I'll get up and I'll walk. And then the boredom comes. That's very unpleasant. Maybe I'll call someone. I'll do something. And you start to see that you go through your entire day, one thing after another, being a response to alleviate some kind of pain. So this is the first characteristic. Anyone not notice it here in the retreat? Raise your hand. I'd like to meet you. It's a kind of insight, isn't it, that that's part of incarnation as a human. And the more you pay attention, the more it's there for us when we're present. The second obvious characteristic to study is impermanence. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame. They come like winds. They move through us. Sometimes we gain things, we lose them. There's happiness, there's joy, and then there's sorrow. And then pretty soon we're older, and it just keeps changing as it does. Death won't happen to us, of course. That's what it says in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Mahabharata, one of the most amazing things on earth. People can see others around them die and think somewhere inside that it's not going to happen to me. A friend of mine who runs a hospice said this 95-year-old woman came into his hospice and she was really upset and she said, why me? This is true, a true story. And another physician friend who worked in the emergency room said the most extraordinary thing was to see that death had no age to it. Every week there would be infants who would come in who had died. And there would be children, young children, and children who were teenagers, 10, 12, 14, 16. There would be people in their 20s dying of car accidents or other mishaps, suicides. And there'd be people in their 30s dying of cancer, people in their 40s, people in their 50s and 60s. There was no age range that wasn't represented every week. There are 28 recorded civilizations that we have written in some form in written history. This is big civilizations, the Greeks or the Romans, the Egyptians, 28 of them. And our own galaxy revolves, it takes every, it takes 10 million years, like a big Ferris wheel to go around the center. Our star is two-thirds of the way out on one of the spiral arms. And everything changes in 10 million years. Some species die out and new ones are born. And think of how many people come and go in just one part of that rotation. And then in the midst of this, 
we hope to find security. Money in the bank, a home, work, and identity, which are all useful things. I don't mean to say there's something wrong with them. But we think of them as security. And then you look, where's your childhood? What happened to the 1980s? Gone, disappeared, like that. So we sit. And what happens is we sit, we don't distract ourselves. And in being undistracted, it becomes apparent that nothing lasts for more than a short, short time. It kind of sweeps over us. A commuter hopped onto a train at New York and told the conductor he was going out to Fordham. We don't stop at Fordham on Saturday, said the conductor, but I'll tell you what I'll do. As we slow down at Fordham Station, I'll open the door and you jump off. <laughs> make sure you run along the direction of the train when you hit the ground or you'll fall, you'll fall flat on your face. So at Fordham, the door opened and the, conductor, uh, the commuter hit the ground running forward. Another conductor in the next car, seeing him, opened the door and pulled him in as the train resumed speed. <laughs> You're mighty lucky, buddy, said the conductor. This train doesn't stop at Fordham on Saturday. <laughs> I think that's a good description of what happens when we sit. I mean, we get thrown off the train, we get pulled back on the train, the train moves through our mind, then it moves through our body, doesn't it? We don't control it much, it just keeps changing. And the more carefully we pay attention, the more we discover what is the inner waterfall. What seems solid in our body starts to become vibrations and needles and pinpricks and, and changing energy. Moods come and we name them sad, sad, happy, happy. If you name them as long as they last, most of them last five labels, 10, 15 labels. Then sad turns into depression. Then depression turns into fear. Then fear turns into terror. Then terror turns into humor. Then you go back to your breath. Then some other wave comes. It's, we're sitting in the waves move through us. Sounds arise and pass. Thoughts come and go. We're doing well, we're not doing well. How many times have you had those thoughts? Opinions? And all the stories that come that you tell yourself. And when you're in them, they seem very real about the person next to you and the teachers and the way your retreat is going. Whole story completely real, right? And then a little while, it's gone. Someone asked Zen Master Sasaki Roshi, this old, great Rinzai Zen Master, um, why he didn't go out to the movies and kind of partake of American entertainment. He said, I don't need movies. I have interviews. <laughs> and it's true. You will come in and tell this whole amazing thing that happened, and it's very intense and terrible or beautiful. And then the next person comes. And you come back two days later. And your story's completely different, you know? And it seems equally real. It's all in the mind. We're sitting here and the mind does it all. Someone asked Einstein to explain his teachings. He said, if you sit on a couch with a pretty girl for two hours, it seems like a minute. And if you sit on a hot stove for a minute, it seems like two hours. That's relativity. Right? It's all what we do with it. So then here we are sitting, and the breath comes in, and it changes. It's big, and it's small. You're not supposed to make some special kind of breath. You just let it do its rhythms. Thoughts and feelings come and go. And the more you feel, the more you become like a river. But then what happens is you get something good that comes. Oh, a little peaceful, a little joy. Something, this must be working right. And then what do you do? You come and sit the next time, and you say, how did I get that? You tip your head. I did it that way. I sat in this posture. Let's see, I had a drink of water first. You go, I'll get a little more water. And you do everything to try and get that to come back, don't you? Well, let's see, maybe if I hold my breath, I can keep it for a little longer, and it won't go. And you think somehow that meditation is to hold on to some state and not let it go. <laughs> some good state. Does it work? Does it ever succeed for you? Suzuki Roshi was asked if he could sum up the teachings of the Buddha very simply. And he said, yes, three words. Not always so. Fantastic. Three words. Not always so. We are a river. And the more that we grasp, the more we suffer. So as you sit more and more deeply, let yourself explore and sense the inherent pain that's part of our existence that we've run away from for so long. 
the inherent instability that nowhere, if you really listen, does it stay the same for a moment. Then what's the third of these fundamental characteristics to discover? Is called anatta, selflessness. Gil talked about it a little bit last night. What this means is that there's no separate self, no unchanging self, that we are a changing, ever-changing process. You can't say, this is me, this is me, this instant, yes, and now this instant, me, is different. Look for yourself. Thoughts arise, they think themselves. You don't invite them. Thoughts come and go like the breeze. The breath breathes itself. Images arise by themselves. Sensations come and go of themselves. Remember the story of Mullah Nasruddin going in the bank to cash a check, the Sufi kind of holy fool, and they said, could you please identify yourself? So he reaches in his pocket and pulls out a mirror, looks and says, yep, that's me, all right. <laughs> we are who we think we are. We make up all these stories about this, I'm a happier, sad person, or smart, or rich, or, or, or poor, or whatever. And we repeat the stories to give ourselves a sense of identity. But really, it's more like a dream, an echo, a mirage, an empty dance. And if you start to let go, you sense that there's nothing solid about existence. We do exist in a certain way, but we exist as movement, as a river, as a stream. And at first, it's kind of scary not to have that normal sense of identity if you let things open, let your thoughts go a little bit more. But actually, it becomes very useful. The Buddha once had a man come to him and ask, um, he said, um, blessed one, and the Buddha said, yes. He said, tell me, where is it that a human being can rest in such a way that they will not be seen by the king of death? It's a very good question, isn't it? And the Buddha replied and said, if a being rests in emptiness, rests in selflessness, they will rest there where they will not be seen even by the king of death. A Dharma passage for you. Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. This is Shakespeare. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve and like this insubstantial pageant faded leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. From the Tempest. So as we open, there is the inherent suffering that's part of existence. There is the inherent change and instability. And the fact that we possess nothing, in the end, we don't even possess our bodies. We rent them. We get them for a while. And you can care for it, but it's not yours. If it was yours, you could say, don't grow old, and it would listen. Story part two. As we sit, as you can hear this, there's a greater and greater opening or surrender, really, to what is true. So this parrot gave her a message to the merchant. And when he reached India, after completing his business, he encountered a field full of parrots. He stopped and called out what she had told him. Remember, I need guidance. Describe my cage. One of the nearest parrots shivered and stiffened and fell down dead. The merchant said, oh, this one surely must be relative to my parrot. I shouldn't have spoken. He finished his trading and returned home with presents for all his employees. When he got to the parrot, she demanded her gift. What happened when you told my story to the Indian parrots? I'm afraid to say. Master, you must. Well, when I spoke your complaint to the field of chattering parrots, it broke one of their hearts. She must have been a close companion or relative, 
for when she heard about you, she grew quiet and trembled and died. As the cage parrot heard this, she herself quivered and sank to the cage floor. End of part two. So there's a kind of surrender that's asked of us in this practice as we sit and walk. The more deeply we open and listen, the more we sense that we don't control our mind and our body, our pain, our loss, our joy, our love. We simply sit and open to what is so. So Horton kept sitting there day after day, and soon it was autumn, the leaves blew away, and then came the winter, the snow and the sleet, and icicles hung from his trunk and his feet. But Horton kept sitting and said with a sneeze, I'll stay on this egg and I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said and I said what I meant, an elephant's faithful, 100%. Remember that from your childhood? So here you are sitting on this egg, right? (laughs) And as we do it, and as we sense the pain that comes at times and the movement of mind and things are out of control and you can't make them the way you like, it's easy as you continue to sit to think that you're doing it wrong. If you're still here, you're not doing it wrong. (laughs) And there was a, I tell this story sometimes, there was someone who came during a three-month retreat in the middle of it who knew a number of people who were sitting and began to ask me about them. How is John? I said, he's doing all right. And how is Sally doing? She's had a rough time, but it's going all right for her. Doing pretty good. How is Marty? Well, Marty's hanging in there. He's doing good, too. But they asked about six people. I kept saying they were doing good. Finally, this person said, what do you mean when you say they're doing good? And I had to think about it. It wasn't really so conscious. So I thought for a moment, and I said, it means they haven't left yet. (laughs) And I was serious. You see, we think that if we did it good, there'd be no pain. Or if we did it good, some beautiful state would stay. Or if we were doing it right, we would be joyful all the time. Or some notion like that. Don't you have that that comes to you, most of you? And that somehow because there is change and we can't control it and some of it's half of it's painful as well as pleasant and so forth, that we're doing it wrong. You're not doing it wrong. You're just seeing life. So again, this is the first noble truth. Opening as the Buddha did on the night of his enlightenment to see joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain, inextricably intertwined, good and bad, beauty, ugliness, two sides of the same coin. He sat and he said, I won't run away any further from pain, from loss, from suffering. I will face it. And then, as he did, you can look and see, well, what is the cause of all the suffering of our lives? The cause in ourself is seeking a false sense of security through grasping at things that never last, through struggle, through somehow wanting it to be different, out of greed or fear or hatred or contraction. We believe that if we contract and hold on in different ways, that we can escape the truth of life. But we can't. So the cause of our suffering is our non-acceptance of life as it is. Then there's the third noble truth of the Buddha, which is nirvana, freedom. And each of us can sense that freedom. There's a a wonderful flavor to it that you can sense even coming to a retreat. There's this sense of peace that comes, even with all the difficulties. That which is timeless. When we step out of liking and disliking, what was there for the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment is here for us now as we sit. Suzuki Roshi put it this way. He said, when we understand the fact that everything changes, and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. So a question for us. What are we looking for? For so long we've been looking. Some special state, some secret experience. What are you seeking? There is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching the physical senses, and then 
the mental senses of feelings and thoughts and imagination, taking the mind as the sixth of our sense doors. There are those six things. Anyone have anything else in their world? Raise your hand. Okay, so there's sights and sounds and smells and tastes, physical sensations, and then mental constructions. No more and no less. This is it for the human realm. And then we're thinking, well, I want it to be different. I imagine something else. This is it. What you're looking for down the road will be more seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. You want that one instead of this one? It's the same thing. We keep imagining somehow that there's something else. Zen master Sansanim wrote a poem when he went to Bodh Gaya. He said, once a great man sat beneath this Bodhi tree. He saw the morning star and was awakened. He absolutely believed his eyes. The sky is blue, the earth is brown. He believed his nose, his tongue, his ears, his body, his mind. And so everything became complete as it was with no hindrance. He discovered a freedom beyond birth and death. He simply sat and saw what was so and rested in that. There's nothing to add to it, just more seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Nothing to subtract. What more do you want? Doesn't matter. This is what there is. So the third noble truth is freedom, is nirvana, is finding one's peace in the world exactly as it is. And the fourth noble truth is the path to this freedom, which is called the middle path, the path of presence. T.S. Eliot's line, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. Being just here with things as they are. This is what my teacher Ajahn Chah called taking the one seat. Remember I talked about that the first night? Opening the doors and windows and resting in the middle, halfway between heaven and earth. Take this seat like a king or a queen on their throne, a certain kind of dignity, which is your own Buddha nature that yes, I too can sit in the midst of this life right between heaven and earth and open to it as the Buddha did. One's own Buddha nature, one's own truth. And from this, in any moment that we are really willing just to say yes and be present and open, a whole new life can open for us. Story part three. So as the parrot heard the story from India, she herself quivered and sank to the cage floor. The merchant was a good man. He grieved deeply for his parrot, clear, loving. Then, when the merchant opened the door and threw the dead parrot out of the cage, shortly thereafter, it spread its wings and glided to a nearby tree. The merchant suddenly understood the mystery Ah, sweet singer, what was in the message that taught you this trick? Ah, she told me, my friend in India, that I was so charmed and entranced by my own cage, I had to let it go to be released. The parrot then told the merchant one or two more spiritual truths and a tender goodbye from the treetop. God protect you, said the merchant, as you go on your new way. I hope to follow you myself. So he has a happy ending here. (laughs) Thought she died. It was only a trick. (laughs) It's what you have to do as well. There's a surrender. Things change. There's pain. There's pleasure. There's joy. There's sorrow. The possibility of awakening is that we sit in the center and bear witness to the unspeakable beauty and sorrow of life that we sit as the Buddha did with his great heart of compassion. One of the most wonderful images for me of this was the Tibetan Lama Karmapa, who used to come to teach in America, was considered one of the incarnations of the great Buddha of compassion. And he would do this ceremony of placing a black hat or crown on his head and taking out of a box a crystal rosary, both of which were given to him more than a thousand years ago by one of the emperors of China in one of his past incarnations. He kept these treasures. 
And when he does, and the lamas all chant and blow their horns, and there's this whole ceremony, when he places the crown on his head and takes the crystal rosary of the Buddha Avalokiteshvara of infinite compassion, then he is said to transform himself into the Buddha that touches the heart of every being with kindness. And if you look in his face, he looks so sad. It's like the kind of sad, kind of an unbearable sadness as he does his 108 crystal beads, says his prayers, opens his heart to the whole world, and then puts them away. And the time that he's not doing the ceremony, he was like this great big wonderful child, this big baby, 55-year-old baby. you know. And then he'd turn into the Buddha of compassion again. What is it to awaken the great heart of a warrior? When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise, when you look in, that your heart is empty. Look and see. You find that as you look in, you look into space. Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything solid or tangible. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or you've fallen possessively in love, but that's not the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you pass your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there's nothing there except tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It is like pure raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of the spiritual warrior that has the capacity to heal and transform the world. So this is our possibility to bear witness to change and loss and beauty and sorrow and the wonders of life and to rest in what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity. To sit as if you were at the birth of a child, if you've ever been to the birth of a baby, or at the bedside of someone who dies in a graceful way, which Elizabeth Kubler-Ross likened to sitting next to a falling star, this great silence that happens. This mystery of being born for a while in this body and then going out like a falling star. To sit is to open to this mystery of life, moment after moment, the unbearable joy and beauty and the unbearable sorrow. From Walt Whitman, I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. And the tree toad is a work of the highest form. The running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven. And a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Just the existence of an owl. And who makes that? Or a cactus, or the sun, or our own body. To rest in this mystery and in our heart is what we're asked to do. To do that, you must give up your body of fear. All the ways you try to protect yourself, and they'll come, aversion and fear, and all these things, that's okay. Don't believe them, that's all. Let them be there, aversion, aversion, fear, fear. Just name them as part of the dance, and let yourself rest in something greater. To bear witness to it all, like space. And as we open, we discover, Kala Rinpoche said, you live in illusion in the appearance of things. You're so caught up in right and wrong and how it should be. There is a reality, but you do not know this. And when you discover this, you will find that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So we let go and be less and less, be nothing. And in being nothing, we are everything. At first, it's hard. It's scary. What if I let go? I'll be vulnerable. I won't know what to do. I won't be thinking so much about my plans. Who will I be? But it's a little like swimming as you meditate, as you let go and just feel what comes. At first, when you're a kid learning to swim, you don't think water will support you, do you? 
You can't trust it. You have to keep moving because otherwise you'll sink. And then there's that moment, that magic moment where you let go and you just let yourself float and you realize that yes, it will support you. You can swim in this emptiness. It will support you equally well. From Kabir. We sense that there is some sort of spirit that loves birds and animals, even the ants, all those wonderful ants out there. Perhaps the same that gave a radiance to you in your mother's womb. Is it logical you would be walking around entirely orphaned now? Think about it. The truth is you turned away yourself. Kabir says today is a good day to remember. Why not wake up now? So to do this is surrender to our life. At first it's hard, but then it becomes more beautiful. You see as you let go that your brothers and sisters are everywhere, that what we seek is here. It's always been here. It's who we are all together. The whole moon and sky are reflected in a drop of dew in the grass. And every time you take a step in your walking meditation, you can touch the earth as if you and the earth are one. You can care for the earth. Every time you breathe, you breathe with the trees and the rainforest. Every time you eat, you taste the spices of Indonesia. You care for the earth by caring for your food. And as we do this, something wonderful opens in us. This connection that we have with all things. One day when I was sitting quiet, feeling like a motherless child, which I was, this is from Alice Walker, it came to me, that feeling of being part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens, you just can't miss it. So there's a trust that we too, like the Buddha, can awaken, that we too can be free in this moment. And that's what we do in this simple way, breathing in and out, taking each step, chewing our food, letting ourselves learn to be with life just as it is in a place of wakefulness and freedom and tremendous compassion. Don't think that this is passive because the freer you become, the more that everything you touch awakens. So sit up for a moment and I will read you a last poem. <coughs> Let your eyes close gently. Come back to just be where you are. The pain and pleasure, the inevitable sorrows and suffering and beauty and mystery, and the breathing, the movement that is your life in the midst of it all. Um, who, who are you, wanderer? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.